0: As redemptive history unfolds, the promise of this coming one becomes more clear. In Genesis chapter 12, we learn that this coming one will descend from the line of Abraham. In Genesis 12:2, God said to Abraham, "I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." How will this coming one arrive? and redemptive history, and reverse the curse of sin, he will come through the line of Abraham, and he will bring the promise, the blessing, promised to Abraham to all the families of the earth. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, we learn that this coming one, this promised deliverer, will descend not only from the line of Abraham, but he will descend from the line of Judah, God says there that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So the nation of Israel is born, the nation is divided into 12 tribes and we are looking specifically at the tribe of Judah for the coming of this deliverer. And we fast forward in Israel's history to the book of 2 Samuel and we are looking at the tribe of Judah and behold there arises a king from the tribe of Judah, and his name is David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes to David this great promise, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The coming deliverer, the promised king, will not only descend from the line of Abraham, he will not only descend from the line of Judah, but he will come specifically from the line of David, and he will rule on David's throne, and he will establish the throne of David forever and ever. And so the world awaited the fulfillment of this promise. And the Old Testament prophets not only spoke of the coming of this deliverer, they spoke of the very details of his birth. Micah 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who was to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 4 said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So we are looking at the line of Abraham. We are looking at the line of Judah. We are looking at the line of David. And we are specifically looking at the city of Bethlehem. And we are waiting for a miracle to take place which has never taken place in all of redemptive history that a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and we shall call this son Emmanuel, God with us. When this coming one arrives on the redemptive scene, how will he accomplish his mission? How will he reverse the curse of sin? How will he bring the promise, blessing, to all the nations of the earth? Isaiah 55, verse 3 described the Messiah's ministry in this way. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah makes clear that when this seed of the woman comes, the manner in which he will crush the head of the serpent, Satan, is through a sacrificial substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. He will stand in the sinner's place. He will be pierced through for our iniquities. He will be crushed for our transgressions. The wrath that we deserve because of our sins will be poured out on him. This is how the coming one will accomplish his mission. In Malachi chapter 4, the prophet Malachi closed the Old Testament canon with this one last prophecy. In chapter 4, verse 5, he said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And with that prophecy, with the prophecy of the Elijah-like prophet who will come and prepare the way for the Messiah, the Old Testament canon came to a close. And the curtain on the era of promise descended. And what follows is a 400-year intermission, 400 years of prophetic silence in which no word from heaven is heard, a 400-year period known as the intertestamental period. And in Luke chapter 1, our text for this morning, the curtain on the New Testament era ascends and we transition from the era of promise to the long-awaited era of fulfillment. The prophetic silence is broken by two angelic visits announcing two great births in the redemptive plan of God. The first is the birth of John the Baptist, and the second is the birth of Jesus Christ. The first birth is announced to the priest Zachariah in Luke chapter one, verse 13. Gabriel says to Zachariah, do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And then in language echoing the words of Malachi chapter four, Gabriel says in verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The first birth is the the birth of the forerunner, the birth of the one who comes to prepare the way. He is John the Baptist. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and he will come to prepare the way for the Messiah's ministry. He will not be the Messiah. But he will be the forerunner. And his birth is a monumental event in Old Testament prophecy to an, a woman of age who is barren. There is announced that a miracle, miraculous birth will take place. And this child will be the forerunner to the Messiah. But as great as the birth of John the Baptist is, it is not the main birth in this chapter. It is merely prelude, it is merely preparation for the greater announcement found in verse 26. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we have the announcement of the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. And as we gather our hearts around this great announcement, I would just like to unfold for us two basic divisions in this narrative. First, we'll see the announcement of Gabriel. And then secondly, we will see the response of Mary. First of all, let's look at the announcement of Gabriel in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Of all the locations for the Christmas story to take place, Nazareth has to be among the most unlikely of locations. Bible scholars place the population of Nazareth as 100 to 300 people max. It is a tiny little town. It is the most obscure of places. It was so obscure, it was not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It was not mentioned anywhere in the rabbinic writings. It was not mentioned anywhere in the Jewish historical writings. Even Bethlehem, little old Bethlehem, was given a mention in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but Nazareth was so tiny, was so obscure, it is not found anywhere in the Old Testament record. There are many places that God could have sent Gabriel to announce the most momentous birth in the history of redemption. We would expect him to send Gabriel to the capital city of Jerusalem, the cultural center of the Jewish nation and yet god sends gabriel not to the high and the mighty but to the poor and the lowly to the insignificant and obscure and he sends him to a little place called nazareth the disciple nathaniel summed up the reputation of nazareth in john chapter 1 verse 46 saying can anything good come out of nazareth and yet we know the biblical record is that the messiah the coming one would come out of this tiny place, Nazareth. Gabriel is sent not only to an obscure little place, he is sent to an obscure, insignificant person. Mary, verse 26, the angel was sent from God to a virgin, and the virgin's name was Mary. Mary was most likely very young, Most Bible scholars believe she was as young as 12 to 14 years of age. That's when young girls got betrothed in those days. Just stop and think about it for a second. 12 to 14 years of age. If Mary was in our church today, she would still be in youth group. She would be at the age where most girls are listening to Justin Bieber and lining up to see the latest Twilight movie and she is being entrusted with the Messiah, the coming one, Jesus Christ. I just say this as an aside, that if you are in youth group, and I know there's five or six of you here this morning, I just wanna encourage you this morning that there are two angelic visits in this chapter. One is to an old man, Zachariah, and the other is to a young teenager named Mary, and guess who has the greater faith of the two? It is not the old man, Zachariah. He doubts and he does not believe in the angel's message. It is the young teenager, Mary. If you are in junior high or high school, let me say to you as your pastor, You do not need to get any older to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And you do not need your parents' permission to love him or to follow him. And may I say to us as a church, let us not despise the youth of our church. May we pray that they have a faith even greater than ours because old age does not necessarily equal greater faith and young age does not necessarily equal spiritual immaturity. Mary is an example, not only of faith, but of faith at a young age. And she's also an example of faith who, who just so happens to be a woman. You know what is remarkable about the gospel story? It begins with two women and it ends with two women. The gospel story begins in Luke chapter one with the angel announcing the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist to Elizabeth and Mary, two women. And the gospel story ends at the tomb with the angel announcing the resurrection of Jesus to two women. Mary's an example of faith not only to youth but to women. I would point to her as a ta- in the text and encourage the sisters of our church to be women of faith, to be women who love Christ, to be women who follow Christ because some of the greatest examples of faith in the Bible just so happen to be women. Mary was very young. She was also most likely very uneducated. Very few women were taught to read in those days. Mary was most likely illiterate. She most likely learned what she knew about the scripture from what she heard aloud in the synagogue. And growing up in Nazareth, Mary would have been very poor. When you think about Mary, wipe away the Catholic artwork that you've seen of Mary being a regal queen of heaven and having a halo around her head and beautiful embroidered clothing, the biblical Mary would not have known who that woman was. The Mary we find in the Bible, we find a peasant girl, peasant dress, dirty feet, dirty sandals, menial labor, eking out an existence, going to get water from the well, the lowest of the low, the humblest of the poor, that was Mary. And yet God sends Gabriel to break the prophetic silence, to announce the fulfillment of hundreds of years of redemptive history to an obscure little town, to an obscure little woman. And he announces this news to Mary in verse 28. Gabriel says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And in verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful message. The word favor there comes from the Greek term charis. It's the same word that's translated grace throughout the Bible. It's a word that means unmerited favor, unmerited blessing Gabriel is pronouncing to the lowest of low, the most insignificant of people, that God has pronounced his favor upon you. You have done nothing to earn this blessing. You have done nothing to merit what he is about to give to you, but Mary, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The whole point of this narrative is that Christmas story is a message of grace. It's a message of God's unmerited favor coming from heaven to earth, finding those who do not deserve his blessing and pronouncing God's favor upon them. Mary came to God the same way we do, by grace. By grace through faith. And verse 27 emphasizes that she was a virgin She had not yet had relations with any man. This was in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And as we move to verse 31, I want you to see here the announcement of the birth of Jesus to the virgin Mary. Gabriel proclaims to Mary the most monumental birth and redemptive history, and in so doing, he highlights three essential features of who Jesus is. These are three essential features of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and I'll just give them to you very rapidly. First, he highlights the mission of Jesus the mission of Jesus. He highlights the fact that the mission of Jesus is to accomplish salvation. Verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus being the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua, a name which means Yahweh saves. It is a name signifying salvation. In biblical times, your name represented your character. It represented who you were. It represented your place in society. And when the angel says that his name will be Jesus, he's saying that the mission of this child, the mission of this son, the reason why God has sent him to this earth is to accomplish salvation from sin for mankind. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The child to be born to Mary would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He would be a man who is acquainted with sorrows. He is a man who would be acquainted with grief. He would be the servant who would walk the road to the cross, who would be pierced through for our iniquities, who would be crushed for our transgressions. He would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, looming over the Christmas narrative, which tells us of the birth of Jesus Christ, is the shadow of the cross. Because this is why this child was born. He was born in order to accomplish salvation. And in order for salvation to be accomplished for man, there must be a sacrifice a substitute who is was offered on behalf of guilty sinners. This is the only way that the curse of sin in Genesis chapter three would ever be reversed. And this is the only way that the head of the serpent, Satan, would be crushed in utter defeat. Gabriel highlights the mission of Jesus. He has come to save his people from their sins. Secondly, he highlights the nature of Jesus. The nature of Jesus in verse 32, he says, he that is this this child who will be born to you will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. The most high was an Old Testament name for deity. When Gabriel says that this child will be called the son of the most high, he is saying that he will be the son of God. The Son of God was a title which emphasized the nature of Jesus Christ as essential deity. Gabriel is saying in no unmistakable words that the child who will be born to you, Mary, he will be God. He will be the Son of the Most High. What Gabriel is telling Mary in this passage is is astounding. There are no words describe the amazing nature of this proclamation. He is proclaiming to Mary the the glory of what theologians call the incarnation. God in human flesh, the word become flesh and dwelt among us so that we would behold his glory. He is proclaiming to Mary that in her womb, the most amazing miracle in all redemptive history would take place. The divine nature of Jesus Christ, the full essential nature of his divinity would be joined in inseparable and eternal union with a full nature of sinless humanity so that the baby who would be born to Mary would not only be God, but he would be the God-man. 100% God. 100% man. Two natures joined eternally in one person. The mission of Jesus was to accomplish salvation. The nature of Jesus is essential deity. And then thirdly, Gabriel highlights the eternal reign of Jesus. Verse 32, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's a reference back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, that on the throne of David there shall be one, a king who comes who will reign on earth forever and ever. And so the message that Gabriel proclaims to Mary, to the poorest of poor, to the most insignificant of the obscure, is that a child would be born, that this child would be the fulfillment of hundreds of years of redemptive history, that he would be the God-man, the word become flesh, that he would be the suffering servant, the one who has come to accomplish salvation from sin, and that he would be the eternal king the one who descends from the line of David who will establish David's rule forever and ever. And as God proclaimed to Mary the good news of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, so God proclaims to us the good news of Jesus Christ on this day, Christmas Day, 2,000 years later, that in the town of Bethlehem, A savior has been born to us. A child has been born to a virgin, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Lord, the savior of all. He is Jesus, he is Yahweh saves, he is salvation. He has come to accomplish salvation on our behalf. He is God. He is the God man, full humanity and full deity in one person. Isaiah 9:6 calls him wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is not only Savior, but He is Lord, He is King. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one from before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. And this child who was born to the Virgin Mary, He is the Savior of the world. He is Emmanuel, God with us, Son of God, Son of man, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And as this Christmas narrative makes clear, this son, this child who will be born to Mary, will not only be savior in humility and in suffering, but he will also be a king who is exalted and who will reign. He has risen from the grave. He is ascended to the right hand of the Father. When he returns, he will return for the second time in power and authority. He will return in glory and sovereignty. He will rule over the nation of Israel. His rule will extend to the entire earth. He will reverse the curse of Genesis chapter three and he will bring the blessing that was promised to Abraham not only to Israel but to all the families of the earth and he will rule on David's throne forever and ever. As Mary received the message of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, let us receive this message in our hearts today. How do we receive this message? God calls us to receive the message of Jesus Christ by repenting of our sins and by placing our faith in Jesus. To repent means to turn around, to do a 180, to turn from your sin and unbelief and to place your trust and your faith in this Messiah, this promised one who has come in fulfillment of all the scriptures and to believe means that you renounce all your efforts to earn your own salvation, all your efforts at works righteousness, all your efforts in order to earn your standing before a holy God, and you place your faith, you place your confidence and your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, the completed work that has been done for you, and you come simply clinging to that work and holding nothing to what you have accomplished, but only to what Christ has accomplished for you. Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Would you respond to the message of Jesus Christ this Christmas day with repentance in your hearts and with faith in the Savior that God has given to you? And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are a Christian, would you respond this day in the same way with repentance in your heart and with faith fully resting and trusting and the finished work of Christ on your behalf. I told you this morning that there are two basic features as this narrative unfolds. The first was the announcement of Gabriel, the announcement of the good news of Jesus to the lowest of low, and to the most obscure of the significant. And as we respond to this great announcement with faith in our hearts, let us consider the second feature in this text, which is the response of Mary. The response of Mary. How does Mary respond to the proclamation of this message? Well, we said that she responds with a heart of faith. The whole point of the narrative is that her f- response contrasts drastically with the response of Zechariah because Zachariah did not believe the words that were spoken to him. But the question we would ask of this text is, how does Mary express her faith in the message of Christ? What is the fruit that comes out of her faith in what Gabriel has proclaimed to her? And Mary expresses her faith in Christ in three specific ways, and I will take the liberty of calling these the true spirit of Christmas. This is the true spirit of Christmas. If you want to celebrate Christmas in a Christ-honoring way, look no further than the three ways that Mary expresses her faith as she receives the message that is proclaimed to her. First of all, Mary expressed her faith in careful contemplation. In careful contemplation. Look back at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And note Mary's response here. She tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. May I remind you here that Mary is a teenager? May I remind you here that Mary is an uneducated, illiterate, poor little peasant girl? And yet, She responds with maturity that is beyond her years. We would have all excused Mary if she just flipped out, if she just responded emotionally, if she lost all rational thinking as preteen girls are subject to do. What is amazing about this passage is Mary's careful, thoughtful response to the word of God. She responds to the angelic message not with superficial emotion, but with careful contemplation, with deep meditation. She mulls over the words that were spoken to her and she tries to discern what is the meaning of what has just been spoken to me. She is using her mind. She is quieting her heart. She is thinking through the meaning of these words. And I would say to us that this is the true spirit of Christmas. I would say to us that this ought to be our response whenever we hear the word of God proclaimed, but especially this Christmas day especially as we hear the message of Jesus Christ, especially as we consider the God-man crucified on our behalf for our sins in our place, risen and exalted to the right hand of the Father, especially as we consider the greatest message ever given to mankind which is the message of salvation. We must respond with faith. And what that means is, brothers and sisters, we must carefully consider and contemplate the meaning and the significance of this message. We must resist The temptation to respond to the Christmas message with a spirit of syrupy and sentimental emotion, superficial feeling, trained behavior that the world trains us to do. And we must, if I could put it this way, we must rigorously discipline our minds this day to shut out the distractions, to discern what is biblical from what is not biblical, and to carefully ponder the meaning of this message, that we may respond with true faith in our hearts. I believe Christmas Day is one of the most distracted and hurried days of the year for Christians. I believe that this is one of the most confused days, confused holidays in our spiritual walks because the world is proclaiming to us their version of the message of Christmas. And we're just, on top of that, just busy. We're busy getting our Christmas cards, our gifts, our stockings. We have so much going on in our minds in our hearts We lose discernment. Is this day about the birth of Jesus Christ or is it a day about Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? I forget because there's just so much confusion out there. And maybe this morning you've come to worship with a distracted heart. Maybe this morning you've come with a million holiday distractions on your heart and your mind. And may I just encourage you, brothers and sisters, that if that is how you've come this morning, I just want to encourage you from the example of Mary. Would you quiet your heart before the message of God in this text? Would you take time this Christmas? Would you take time this service not to superficially respond to this message, but to carefully contemplate, to diligently think through, to quietly meditate on the glory of the message of Jesus Christ, who has come from heaven to earth to die for our sins, to be sacrificed on our behalf. Mary responded with a heart of careful contemplation of the message that she received. Secondly, Mary responded with a heart of loving submission to the lordship of Christ. Loving submission to the lordship of Christ. Verse 38, after Gabriel proclaims to Mary the birth of Christ, Mary responds in this way, she says, Behold, I am the servant, I am the dule, the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, that wasn't an easy thing for Mary to say. Submission to the angelic message would come at a high cost for Mary. Mary would be pregnant before her marriage was consummated. All of society would assume that she was an adulteress. Public shame would be heaped upon her. Most likely, Joseph, her betrothed, would divorce her, and that is exactly what Joseph planned to do before the angel appeared to him and told him not to do that. And there was a very real possibility that Mary could lose her life by submitting to this message. The Old Testament law prescribed that adulteresses should be put to death. And that law wasn't faithfully carried out in Mary's day, but it was a very real and distinct possibility. Mary could lose her life if she submits to what the angel's telling her. There was a cost for Mary's faith. There was a price to be paid. Her world would be turned upside down. All her future plans would be left up for grabs. And she would not know what the future would hold. And yet, Mary responds with loving submission. She, with faith in her heart, she places her life in the hands of God. And she says to God, I am your slave. Whatever may come, I submit to the will of God for my life. Let it be to me according to your word. In this passage, we see Mary, a teenager, bowing her knee before the sovereignty of God in her life. And may I say to us that this is always the heart of faith. This is always the expression of true faith in the good news, True faith in the message that has been proclaimed to us, the true heart of faith is to express itself in loving submission. True faith says to God, you are the Lord. You are in charge. I don't know what my future holds. I don't know where you're gonna lead me, but I do know this. I am your servant. I am your slave. Whatever your will is for me, I humbly and lovingly submit myself to your lordship. That is the heart that Mary demonstrates. And I would say to us as well that there's always a price to be paid for believing in Christ. There was a price for Mary and there's a price for us. There's always a price. For some of us, it's family. We've lost family members because of our faith in Christ. For some of us, it's friends. For some of us, it's future plans. For some of us, it's suffering, it's sacrifice. There's always a price to be paid for believing in Christ. And Mary says, you know what? The good news that has been proclaimed to me is so great and so glorious that any price I have to pay is really a, a second thought. I lovingly submit myself to the Lordship of Christ. I am your servant. Not my will, but may yours be done, no matter what the cost. Brothers and sisters, what is the cost, the price that God is calling you to sacrifice because of your faith in Christ? May I remind you that any sacrifice that we would make in believing in Christ, it's it's, it's a trifle. It's it's a pittance in comparison to the greatness of the message that has been proclaimed to us, the message of a redeemer, the message of a savior, the message of an eternal king who will rule forever and ever, and we who believe in Christ will reign forever and ever with him. Is there any sacrifice that is too great? is, Is there any sacrifice even worth mentioning? in comparison to the sacrifice that he has made for us. Mary expressed her faith in careful contemplation. She expressed her faith in loving submission. And then third and finally, Mary expressed her faith in joyful praise. In joyful praise. Verse 46, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth's baby, leaps while still in his mother's womb. The baby John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth. Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit and cries, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then in verse 46, Mary, illiterate, uneducated, simple old Mary responds in one of the greatest expressions of praise found in all the Bible. It's an expression so biblical, an expression so profound, an expression so theologically wise that it has been given a Latin title. The title is the Magnificat from the Latin, meaning my soul magnifies. And that is exactly what Mary says in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What is the true spirit of Christmas? It's a heart of careful contemplation, It's a heart of loving submission and it is a heart of joyful praise. Put it simply, the true spirit of Christmas is a heart of worship. It's a heart of worship. Mary says, my soul, the deepest part of who I am, the deepest part of my thinking and my emotions will magnify, will literally enlarge the Lord. Mary's not saying that she's going to make the Lord any larger than he is. That's impossible. We all know that. What she is saying is that in response to the message she has received, that she will think in the deepest part of her heart large thoughts, exalted thoughts, noble and great thoughts about who the Lord is and what he has done for her. She is saying that in the deepest part of her soul, there will be great and mighty thoughts about the Lord. And what will be the focus of those great and mighty thoughts? Look at verse 46. She says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The large, exalted thoughts that Mary will meditate and ponder upon as she gives joyful praise and worship to her God, will center on the salvation that God has accomplished for her through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. As she magnifies the Lord in her soul, her spirit will rejoice in God, her savior. Brothers and sisters, may we celebrate Christmas this day with the same heart of Mary. May we hear the joyful tidings, the sovereign glad announcement given from heaven to earth which concerns the mission of Jesus. He has come to accomplish salvation. The nature of Jesus, he is the God-man crucified for our sins and the eternal reign of Jesus, he is the exalted risen savior who is coming again, who will rule on David's throne forever and ever, and may we respond to this message with hearts of faith. Trusting and believing in the words we have heard, carefully contemplating all that he has done, lovingly submitting to his lordship over our lives, and joyfully worshiping him with all our hearts magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God our Savior. For unto us, for unto us has been born a Savior in the little town called Bethlehem. He is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, Son of God, Son of Man, the one we worship this Christmas day. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer and let's give thanks to our God for the great things he has done. Our Father, we magnify you. We rejoice in you because you are God, our savior when we were lost in our sin and in our transgressions, you sent a redeemer. You sent a deliverer, a savior, to come and to pay the penalty for our sins. He was pierced through for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. The wrath that we deserve was poured upon him So, Father, we celebrate this Christmas day not with mere sentiment, not with superficial emotion, but seeking to deeply contemplate the work of Christ and all that he has done. Well, Father, we bow the knee. We submit to whatever your will is for our life. We proclaim that you are the Lord over all. We ask that you would bless us. And even now, as we respond in joyful praise to the great things that you have done for us, would you receive the glory in this time and in our church? Christ, and we pray. Amen.